Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Before we, um, before we get started, I just had a few... Um, my name is Mike McCarthy. I'm the Senior Vice President of CN International, so I run all CN International's programming, and also with the... Um, with Leif Corlum and Lisa Cohen oversee the CNN Freedom Project. So I just had a few um, just small announcements, um, acknowledgements more than anything else to make. Um, firstly, to say you know, good evening to everyone and, what a, and say what an honour it is to be here um, at the um, Kennedy School of Government. It's you know, a place that I've watched many debates and discussions from before and you know, it's just very exciting and um, a real pleasure to be here to hold a, a CNN event here with you all. So thank you very much for having us here. Um, I want to start with just a few important acknowledgements. Um, firstly, to the Assam and Dalal Abade Foundation um, for their unstinting support um, of the Freedom Project, um, the ambitions and its values. Um, it's something that CNN holds very dear, um, and they have been, you know, huge supporters of what we're trying to do with the Freedom Project, not just for this event, but throughout the whole of um, 2015. So we're, we're really indebted to them. Um, well worth a round of applause. And especially um, to their son, Nawaf, who's hiding there in the second row. Um, he's a visiting fellow here at Harvard's uh, Belfer Center, so he's one of yours, as it were. Um, and he was instrumental in putting all the parties together for us to, to host this terrific evening tonight. Um, so a big round of applause for Nawaf as well. We really do appreciate it. As with all these events, um, there are so many people who have to be involved. Um, it would be remiss of me not to say Maggie Williams and Carrie Devine here at the Institute of Politics and, you know, and their dedicated crew they really have sort of been gracious hosts and made us feel very welcome. So thank you very much, Carrie, for... Uh, I'm sorry for all those phone calls we had over the last few months, but it'll all be worth it, trust me. Um, um, also, to our partners in this um, editorial endeavour, um, Graham Allison and Josh Burick at the um, Belfer Centre. Your team have been wonderful. We've really enjoyed working with you, and I think you know, you're going to see the benefits of a terrific collaboration um, on this project this evening. And last but not least, um, Douglas Johnson and Shushma Rahman um, from the Car Centre, frankly, really, for more than anything, for underscoring the importance uh, of this topic each and every day and all the resources that you put towards keeping this very, very important topic in the public eye all the time with your research and hard work. It really is you know, something we rely on and many other media institutions rely on. So thank you very much for that. Those of you not, maybe not as familiar with the Freedom Project, um, it started five years ago, and it was really to highlight the global injustice of human trafficking, but also you know, the many forms that modern-day slavery takes. Um, and I think I've often said that you know, when CNN got involved, we really wanted to see ourselves as joining a movement, not necessarily as you know, coming over the hill on the white charger, but it was really to shine, shine a spotlight on the heroes who are working every single day at the front lines, out of the public glare. You know, people who are risking their lives to both save people from, you know, the awfulness of modern-day slavery and then help the survivors to get back on the path to, to fruitful lives. And we wanted to be the microphone for those people. And I think, you know, along with the State Department here in the U.S., who does so much great work in this, and we really think we've seen a... a 
a sea change in people's perceptions of what the issue is. There is really has been a breakthrough in the public consciousness in the last five years since we've been involved in the movement, and it really is being involved as partners as opposed to leading it. Um, and I think it's only through events like this that we can now really start to push on and say, okay, if we have this groundswell of support, what is it that we can do with it now? Um, I think it's one of those movements that is all about momentum. I think you've got to keep the momentum. You have to keep pushing new things, doing different things, having different debates. And so we wanted to use this occasion to launch another Freedom Project endeavor, which is more of a, a social media movement. Um, and it's called Fly to Freedom. It plays off our logo of the paper plane. And you'll see on many of the seats the sort of instructions of how to make a paper plane, but I'm, I'm sure you don't need those. But um, it actually gives some insight into what the, um, the social media campaign that we're looking to do, again, to just raise, raise awareness but keep this issue at the forefront of people's minds. So rather than me sort of make a ham-fisted effort at trying to tell you what this social media campaign is, we prepared a little short video. What we'll do is we'll play that video, and then after we play the video, the main event that you've all come for will start, and that will be moderated by Richard Quest, um, the inimitable Richard Quest from our Quest Means Business show. So they'll be out in one second, but for now, let's just play the video very quickly, and you can, you can work on what the next stage of this is. Slavery. You might think it's a thing of the past. It's not. It's all around us. There are between 20 and 36 million slaves in the world today. Five and a half million children globally are in forced labor. And half of all human trafficking victims are sexually exploited. Since 2011, the CNN Freedom Project has been highlighting modern day slavery, giving a voice to victims. Now we need your help. Join CNN's Fly to Freedom campaign and help raise awareness of modern-day slavery. Here is what we want you to do. Make a plane. Make a pledge. Show us your plane and pledge using the hashtag Fly to Freedom and nominate two friends to do the same by tagging them. You might think you can't make a difference, but when we all unite as one, we can make a change together. It takes just a few minutes to participate, so please join us. Share your videos and photos using the hashtag Fly to Freedom and be part of ending modern-day slavery. Let's show the world that it's time for slavery to stop. begin, gosh, I never thought I'd be at Harvard. <laughs> Look at me, mother. <laughs> Closest I ever got to getting to this institution, I can tell you that. All right, so we are about to begin. We have our distinguished panel that I'll be introducing in a moment. Um, as we go through the, yeah, get your pictures out of the way now. <laughs> Left. Center, right. 
Ambassador. As we go through, there will be, we'll be stopping twice for questions from yourselves. There are microphones there. If you've got a question, please make your way to the microphone at the relevant time, and we'll take as many questions as we can. I think that's all straightforward enough. Everything okay? The important thing is to be relaxed. Right. <coughs> uh, we're ready to begin. From the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. Good evening. This is the CNN Freedom Project ending modern day slavery discussion, debate. Our panel this evening is going to get to grips with the very real issue of modern-day slavery. It's a cause to which CNN has been committed to abolishing slavery over the last five years. And now you're going to hear some of the best, brightest, and cleverest views in the world as we discuss modern-day slavery. And we're going to do it in, a particular, in four particular areas, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, we're going to be talking about modern-day slavery as it is within the United States. Then we shall discuss how it is within the trafficking into the United States. One wonders how many people actually realize the size, extent, the depths of slavery within this country. This panel is expert and will give us guidance. Of course, when it comes to slavery, you're also looking at slavery and trafficking overseas, abroad. And there it's not only a question of sexual exploitation, it's also a question of labor, the way people are brought in, the way people are used, abused, the way industries take labor from one country to the next and exploit it. And in doing so, you, ladies and gentlemen, will be answering the question, what is the role and relevance of corporate responsibility? Who really does bear the blame and the responsibility for putting it right? And finally, of course, what can you do? What's your role? What's your responsibility? What questions do you ask about the products that you buy, the places where you go, and the deals that you do? Plenty there for us to keep going. Our panel this evening, ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce, first of all, Rosie Orasco. Rosie is a former senator from Mexico who helped pass a tough human trafficking law in 2012. She is currently the president of the Non-Governmental Commission United Against Human Trafficking. Next to her, good evening, Rachel Lloyd, founder and chief executive of Girls Educational Mentor and Mentoring Services. I think we can call it GEMS, based in New York. You'll be giving us your views, your experiences, and your thoughts. In the middle, we have Ambassador Swanee Hunt, former US ambassador to Austria, an author and president of the Hunt Alternatives, which amongst many other things, is focused on eradicating the illegal commercial sex industry 
by combating the demand for purchased sex. As the ambassador will tell us, Swanee, if I may, there are two sides to every sexual transaction. And the question is, do we only focus on one? And then, of course, we have with us this evening Mira Sorvino, the Academy Award-winning actress and a goodwill ambassador to combat human trafficking for the UN ODC. That's the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. And finally, at the end, sir, uh, Siddharth Kara, the adjunct lecturer on public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Carr Center Program on Human Trafficking and Modern Day Slavery. Ladies and gentlemen, if these people don't know the subject about slavery, modern day slavery, we're in trouble tonight. But you do, so thank you, and a round of applause for our panel. Swanee Hunt, I need to start with yourself. When did you first become aware of an issue of human trafficking? What kindled the light for you? I was the chief of mission, the ambassador in Austria, and I went four years after the fall of the wall. And uh, the communist system had imploded, and so as I traveled throughout Central and Eastern Europe, I kept hearing over and over and over about men who would come into a shipyard in Gdansk in Poland and say to women who were out of work, uh, I have a job for you in Germany. You can be a dancer, you can be a waitress. They would take her, rape her on the train, take pictures as they were raping her, take her passport and say, I will send these pictures to your mother at home. And she, at that point, was one of 6,000 prostituted women on the streets of Frankfurt. When you first heard this, did you believe it was true? Did you, did you in your you, say, relatively cloistered background, think this could be happening? Do you know why I did? Because I was talking to the women themselves. I was talking to the mothers who were left behind. The other piece is, I headed the US delegation for an EU conference. And it was when a tall, blonde man in the back of the room at the end of this conference stood up. He was a Swede. And he said, we're missing out on the most important point, And that is, who is doing the buying? Oh, I mean, that was just, right. no one was talking about that. They were all talking about, oh, these poor victims, et cetera, et cetera. No one was talking about who is buying these girls and women. We'll come to that. Rose, when did you first become aware of it? Well, I was invited to the United States in Washington to hear about human trafficking in Mexico. And I was shocked. I didn't know anything. And it was the Bridge Project of 2005. There now, when, was you say, you, when you say you were shocked, is it because you didn't believe it existed or it had never just come onto your radar screen? That's right. There, there was nobody that I knew already that had happened. Uh, that horrible crime near us. So when I heard, it was a story about, about a girl who at the end killed herself. I, I really was shocked. Mira, actresses who win Academy Awards get involved in various projects. Why did you decide to get involved in this one? Okay, long story short, I am a Harvard grad, and I did my undergraduate thesis for the EALC on 
racial conflict, because I wanted to get to the bottom of why people treat each other as things. And I spent a lot of energy in my youth trying to understand how people could objectify others to the point of abuse and, and denial of their basic human rights. The shock for me with human trafficking is there's actually no reason based on a bias that people are abused. It's the profit motive. So around the world, because it is profitable, people take other human beings and make them modern day slaves so they can make money off of them. And it sort of shocks your system because you can't say, oh, well, it's because they're that religion or that gender or that ethnicity. It is simply the love of money. So it, it fit in with what I had been doing academically earlier, but it took it to a whole new level of this is not explained away by history. This is a persistent problem with human beings and, and we have to fight it with every tooth and nail that we have. But I can say, can I, can I mention my connection to Rosie? Or should that be later? Later. Later, okay. Save something for okay. a little bit later. Oh, I've got so much. <laughs> I got so much. When did I first come across this issue? Well, why? Of all the issues that there mm. are, why this one? I think, and this is probably common across all the people working in this field, there is something particularly onerous and distasteful about the stripping of human dignity for the purpose of profiteering. And when you're talking about slavery and the exploitation of debt bondage laborers and child slaves, whether it's for prostitution or labor, you're talking about stripping dignity and humanity, forcing labor out of someone, labor or service, for the purpose of generating tremendous profit. And when you look into the eyes of someone who is in that condition, it shakes you up in a way that you can't ever imagine. And then you're drawn, then you're pulled, and then you're compelled to get involved. And we'll come to you in a second, Rachel, but I want, to give, I want you to find some statistic, something inside you, that basically tells us how big this is. Because to those people watching, maybe in this audience, who think, well, yes, we know it goes on, but aren't they all getting excited about something that's not that big a problem? Well, they need to be aware of the following reality. There are anywhere between 22 and 36 million slaves in the world today. And we're using that term, but we need to take just a moment to define what do we mean by that? We mean people treated as properties. Chattel slavery, that old term that we use, and we know in this country what that means, exerting power over someone and treating them like property. So when you control another human being, strip them of their rights and exploit them for their labor, that's what we're talking about with modern day slaves, roughly 22 to 36 million generating profits for their exploiters that exceed $150 billion per year. Rachel, you see it at the absolute front line, don't you, with gems? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll say that my entry into this into this work was a little different than the other panelists. Um, I actually was working in Germany um, in the early 90s and had ended up in the commercial sex industry as a teenager in Germany. And so my experiences of being exploited and trafficked um, in Germany and then coming to the States, uh, originally working with adult women in the sex industry and realizing that there were these very clear connections, even though, right, we're, we're both we're fellow Brits, um, even though I grew up in a different country, a different continent, even though I'd you know, been exploited in a, in a different continent, the experiences that I was seeing with girls on the streets of New York looked really, really similar. Um, and, and the stigma and the shame and the, the difficulty in-, in You identified? To, yes, absolutely. 
So to add to what Siddharth was saying is that currently only one in 100, one in 100 people who are currently living in slavery will be rescued at this moment. Only 1% gets out right now. What happens okay. to the other 99%? They stay in it or they, there's an attrition wait. They die, they go crazy. I had one, um, one trafficker, sex trafficker in Spain tell me that after three years in his clubs, they were no longer fit to work and they either went home penniless without a penny to their name or they wandered the street homeless and crazy. We will, get, we will go into all <laughs> of these subjects in much more detail over the next hour. I want to begin though with the issue of trafficking within the United States. Somehow, we all know it sort of exists. We all know that it goes on. But do we realize just how much trafficking there is within the United States? I don't think we do. Hold uh, it. Well, you looked right at me, so I was ready to go. <laughs> you were ready to go. I want to show you. A part of a film that's a clip of children for sale. It's a documentary following a year-long investigation. Have a watch. The unwritten rules of the streets can be as bewildering as they are brutal. This undercover footage shows a young woman arguing with a suspected exploiter. Other men sense her weakness and surround her. According to Rebecca, a trafficking survivor, a girl can be taken as property simply by making eye contact with one of these men. If you look at him, you can be taken from who you're with, and he can't do anything about it because you looked at another person. On this night, this woman made it to safety, but so many others do not. It's happening every day, every neighborhood, every socioeconomic status. These guys trade women like kids trade baseball cards. He's taking their bags, putting it in the car, you coming with me. Coming with them to any place that clients are waiting and willing to pay for sex. One of the places they utilized was a field where a woman serviced over 50 men in a field. And you can, you can, people can say, well, she, Nobody, nobody chooses to do that. Right. With us this evening, besides our distinguished panel, we also have Ambassador Susan Coppedge, the U.S. Ambassador at Large to Combat Human Trafficking. The Ambassador has recently been nominated, confirmed, and sworn in. And it's now Ambassador Coppedge's responsibility to help deal, for us from the US government's point of view, with these issues. Ambassador, we'll be coming to you once or twice, but when you see that sort of report of trafficking in the United States, and you're the ambassador responsible for helping solve this issue, what can you do? Well, that particular report came from Atlanta, Georgia. 
where Friday, I quit being a federal prosecutor, and Monday, I became the ambassador at large for trafficking. So that particular report happened in my jurisdiction as a prosecutor, and we brought cases involving both American girls and foreign-born girls in federal court. So now, as ambassador, I get to take the message of what I learned in the courtroom and working with law enforcement, and I get to take that and talk to foreign governments and foreign law enforcement about what they can do for victims of trafficking. But do you accept that as ambassador, the diplomatic niceties of diplomacy can't really be allowed to get in the way here? You're going to have to break some eggs. I like breaking eggs. So I'm more than willing to talk to people about the reality of trafficking. Rachel. I just want to um, actually disagree with something that's in the, the footage. I mean, the guy is talking about how this impacts every socioeconomic class. That's not true. Disproportionately, young people who end up in the commercial sex industry are low-income young people. Over 70% of young people who end up in the commercial sex industry have been in the child welfare system. You don't even like the use of the word prostitution, do you? No. I Tell me why. Uh, because the word, I mean, prostitute um, makes it sound like it's who you are and that tends to be the idea that you were kind of right this is who you were born to be when you have been exploited trafficked it's something that happened to you it's something you can heal from it's something you can move on from it doesn't define you and young people can't make it when we're talking about children under the age of 18 they can't make a choice to engage in prostitution I am right with Rachel I am right with Rachel. You can say this cuts across all the socioeconomic levels, but basically it is white privilege on black-brown and invulnerable. And the highest frequency buyers in the United States are making, now I'm talking about guys who are you know, between 40 and 60 times a year they're buying. They have an average income of $120,000. They're white, they live in the suburbs, and they have children. I think we also need to add to this discussion vis-a-vis -vis human trafficking here in the United States. We're not just talking about the commercial sex sector, which is far more extensive than people realize, but we're also talking about people for, put in forced labor, whether it's in the agricultural sector, in the Central Valley of California, manufacturing, meatpacking plants. We have human traffic, trafficking permeating this country in ways that people aren't realizing or talking about. And yet, we'll, 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 we'll I'd like to just put that to one side. I just want to finish on, if, if you like, on this question, this issue that we're talking Yes, go ahead. I, I just have to, I think it's interesting that when we begin to talk, it's only been in the last few years that we've actually begun to get serious about talking about what's happening to low-income girls, overwhelmingly girls and young women of color, homeless, runaway, foster care youth. And when we do begin to have that discussion, folks feel really compelled to change that conversation into talking about the larger scope of trafficking. And so this idea that like sex trafficking is getting too much attention right now, is I have a hard time agreeing that like a 15-year-old kid from Bed-Stuy who's been in the child welfare system and is being arrested and criminalized is getting like too many services and too much attention. And too well, I don't think that's the point. He's I don't think that's necessarily the point that's, that's, that's being made. It's part of a bigger issue. But what you're saying, if I understand you right, Rachel, is that by looking at the bigger issue, you may inadvertently miss the crucial crisis. Yes, absolutely. And, and right, we, it's taken us 
20 years to get to this point where we're talking about what's happening to young people in our country? Well, and I, during the last three years, I have been visiting jails where pimps, where traffickers in my country are being serving sentences. And some of them were working here in the United States, in New York. And one of them was telling me that he met 60 girls, minors, who were indigents. So they were really not only poor, not only vulnerable, they didn't speak Spanish, they didn't speak English, and they were raped every day, 30 to 40 times a day. Is the answer, Swanee Hunt, to some extent, legalized prostitution? I am 1,000%, and I think most of us here would be, if not all, saying that you should not have women and girls who are being prostituted being arrested, charged, and said, that should not be criminal. The, what right, you're talking about the safe harbor law now, or I'm the refusal of the... Yeah. I'm, and, I'm saying, and I'm saying that they are not the ones who are committing the wrong here. It is the buyers who are the perpetrators and the pimps. They must remain criminalized. And by the way, they are everywhere in the United States except a few counties in Nevada. Around except the though, in reality, when there's an arrest made, like 300 right. times out of 300, it's the girl. It's not the pimp, it's not the John. And if a man is found sleeping with a child who's not buying the services of the child, he gets 10 to 15 years, he gets on the sex offenders registry. If he pays $25 for a service and gets caught, he usually gets sent home and the child is the one who's brought in. Sometimes in a, in a mis misbegotten uh, effort to save the child, they arrest her for her own good, rather than diverting her immediately into services. So right, but this, uh, Mary, is this idea of these, just explain this, the whole idea of a, of a law at the federal level that would protect Okay, the safe harbor law the is safe harbor state. Law. Okay, these are state-by-state state laws. But you'd like to see it federalized? No, uh, states have control of their legislation, so each state has to, has to decide to implement this. The federal government doesn't have control in this way, and this is what I've been working on for several years, working with the National Conference of State Legislators, working with the American Bar Association. Right now, we have a little bit under 50% of states that have some form of a state harbor law. There's just been a new study published by ECPAT. What USA. does a state harbor law allow? It, to those who it are decriminalizes the child in sex, uh, commercial sexual exploitation. It, uh, creates services and, and immediately funnels the child to services. It ex the best ones expunge criminal records of any kinds of crimes that were committed while in the service of the trafficker. It allows for civil redress and compensation, and it, some of them levy much greater punishments right. on the criminals. Ambassador, why would any state not pass a, stay, a safe harbor law? You're a prosecutor. Tell me the reasons why you might not have one. Well, they don't exist, and it's a new law, and we pass in this country new laws. But they laws do exist. All the time. They do exist now, and they are being passed, and they are being passed, and they were passed in Georgia. And the, the big issue, and Amira touched on it, that has to go with a safe harbor law are services for the victims. Because right now, law enforcement in states without safe harbor laws use them to put the victims somewhere. The victims have to be taken care of. So along with the safe and they harbor have to laws, avoid we need the shelters. Directly, you can't be, be arrested and then later try and deal with it. It's so traumatic for someone who has already been exploited to be arrested, to be put through the system, and have that stigma on them forever. It, it makes it very difficult to undo. So 
So I actually co-wrote the first Safe Harbor Law that passed in New York State in 2008. Um, and I've got to say that it was the, the advocacy of survivors and young women um, at GEMS that made that pass and that now we have states uh, around the country kind of looking at that. In not every case does it decriminalize. In some cases, it's about right. making sure that young people are connected to services. But this idea that like the safest place that you can be is detention, okay. is that detention shouldn't be the default for victims. But so, that's not what I'm saying at okay. all. I'm saying services, not so detention. Pulling this together before we move on to those who are trafficked into the United States. If you had to sum up the situation of trafficking in this country, either from a, I'll allow you the latitude of the sexual exploitation side or a more general side, but you're at a chattering classes dinner party where these sort of things don't discuss, get discussed too much over the after eight minutes. But what would your one sentence to your dinner party compatriots be that basically says, Wake up. Start with you. Put down the glass of wine and hear what I'm saying. We're in 2015, 150 years to the year after the 13th Amendment came into effect in this country, and we are still facing a scenario where there are hundreds of thousands of slaves in these borders. This work is not done, and much more resources, government attention, civil society attention, support for NGOs, and research needs to be done to eradicate slavery here. And the person opposite says, have you seen the latest movie, Mira? I would say, thank you. And now, uh, <laughs> that modern day slavery is real, it's huge, even though you don't see it every day, you have to communicate with your representatives in government and say that this is a priority to you, the voting constituency. You need to ask for stronger, better laws that are victim-centric, and you need to say, where the hell is the funding? Because right now, we spend $500 billion a year on the military and less than $200 million on all of our international and domestic programs against slavery combined. Ambassador, when you were having ambassadorial dinners, how would you have given it as a sentence? Hmm. I would have said, are you aware that, I, that the U.S. actually has some dirty laundry ourselves? That the uh, average age in which a female begins to be prostituted is 15, which means that for every 17-year-old, there's a 13-year-old. And good news, 85% of the men in this country don't buy, but guess what? 15% self-report, that's 15 million guys in this country who say that they have bought. Rosie. Well, I think we have uh, worked very well together. Now we have two incredible general attorney, uh, your general attorney, Loretta Lynch, is the nightmare of the pimps. But we have to be congruent that um, we have borders like Tijuana, right. where there is like a concentration camp, and a lot of Americans are coming to buy girls, minors. And like that border, a lot of borders in our country also We're gonna hear are more. having this problem. We're going to hear more about your country in just one moment. I'm gonna, on this part of the program, I'm going to leave the last word to you, Rachel. I would say that last year we served 371 girls and young women ages 12 to 24 in New York City 
who had been commercially sexually exploited and trafficked. I would say that in May, we had eight young women graduate from college, um, two in pre-med right now, um, that support and services and housing and love and commitment and funding and policies and all of those things can make an incredible difference in the lives of young people who've been exploited and that they're not throwaway individuals, but they're people with potential and hope and our past doesn't have to define us. So we have established that human trafficking exists in the United States. The question, of course, is, is it homegrown? Where do those who are trafficked come from? Domestic US citizens, or are they coming from overseas, brought in by subterfuge and illegal activities? Well, the US State Department estimates that roughly 16,000 victims are brought into the country illegally each year. And now, of course, we want to take you to a large number coming from a particular village in Mexico. It's called Tenancingo. Watch this video, and then we'll hear the panel discuss how you prevent this from happening. Growing up in Mexico, life for Carla Jacinto wasn't a fairy tale. But at 12 years old, she thought she had met her Prince Charming. He bought me clothes and shoes. He told me, you're going to be my princess. Carla's new boyfriend was older and from a faraway village called Tenancingo. But after three months, the relationship changed and the scam was revealed. Carla's prince was actually a pimp working as part of an organized crime ring based in Tenancingo. He started punching me, kicking me, pulling my hair. He would spit on my face. Carla says she was forced to prostitute for four years with never a day off. She says her pimp trafficked her across Mexico, demanding she see at least 30 customers a day and keep a daily log of clients. By age 16, Carla calculates she was raped more than 43,200 times. Rosy Orozco is a victim's advocate. The former Mexican senator says it's the powerful who allow trafficking to continue. She had clients that were judges, priests, uh, pastors, of course, uh, police. So she knew that she could not run away to go to the authorities. There are an estimated two million children exploited every year in the global commercial sex trade. Violence, corruption, and a mix of fear and shame are major factors keeping children from trying to escape. I'm going to fight against this until the end. Every day when I wake up, I wonder if I'm going to be alive at the end of the day because of what we do, and what I have experienced makes me a target. Death is lurking. The pain in Carla's face is clear, but perhaps the true tragedy of her story is that it's shared by so many other children like her, still being controlled by human traffickers as we speak. So, Rosie, you've got two types of issues here you've got which you alluded to before people men going across the border into mexico to these camps as you put it and you've got the women who are being trafficked into the united states how are they being brought here well my last book speaks about the sexual exploitation as a family business in tlaxcala that is a beautiful state in mexico there is cowards there are 
people that, as family, they have grown listening to the older pimps that are very, um, you know, they, they are the inspiration of children because they have huge houses, as you were telling us. Uh, this is about the money. This is about huge uh, places where they live, uh, fancy cars. And as Carlita was telling us, she was uh, thinking this was the Prince Charles when he arrived with a lot of money, deceiving her, so what's taking the answer? her out. What's the answer? I think we have to work together with this organized crime. Tenant single, you know, Liv Kurlim and uh, Rafael Romo were heroes to go there. They were risking their lives. But that's the tip of an iceberg. Uh, the pimps that I have been visiting in jail, I have been visiting 17 uh, pimps, and most of them are from Tlaxcala. They are saying that, for example, there is another connection at Xotla del Monte with Houston. And pimps there are growing in impunity in Texas. So we have to work together as we are doing, but being congruent because like last uh, month, I, I read that this uh, money that you are giving from some agencies in the United States are going in Mexico to NGOs right. who are working to protect the pimps. And that's something we have to watch with a magnifying glass. How the money from agency in the United States is going to Mexico to help the NGOs that are really working. And let me tell you, I have never asked for money to the United States, so I, I, I don't, I'm not asking for money. But the money that goes to Mexico has to go to the NGOs who are risking their lives to protect the victims, not the ones that are protecting the interest of the mafia guys of the table dance and the bars where there is human trafficking. Sedat, I'll come to you in a second. I want an answer from you, Ambassador. A yes or a no, will you take this on board when you get back to the State Department to make sure the money's going to the right people? I've already told Rosie we will look into it. I want to comment on something, though. I've prosecuted traffickers from Tenancingo, and it is exactly as that clip indicated. Prince Charming, I love you, come be with me, we'll have a better life in the United States. And then when they get here, it is a complete horror show for them. High volume, low cost, 30 and 40 men a night, $30. Richard, I've spent a lot of time along the South Texas-Mexico border and the California-Mexico border, and people don't realize it is a bloodbath down there. Migrants are coming up fleeing violence through central Mexico up to the border where they run into cartels, traffickers, smugglers, who then extort, abuse, traffic them in, into labor, into commercial sex. And the situation is, it's like a war zone down there. And the number of people flowing up across this border who end up in forced prostitution or in forced labor and agricultural farms is in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, and no one is paying enough attention looking at this, researching it, let alone trying to punish the traffickers and get individuals out of these horrific scenarios. Why, Swanee Hunt, is nobody looking at it and taking it seriously? Well, you have to think about this whole system. And I'm so glad that you're raising these things, Rosie and, and Rachel and, and the others, because we have to see it as a whole. So you have the traffickers, okay, or the pimps, and then you have the, the girls and women who are being victimized, and then you have these guys you know, at your Thanksgiving table, by the way, and sitting at church with you. And they are, I mean, they're among, stop, 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 you leave me alone. 
you leave me alone. I'm, they are in my class. You just stop, hold it. They are, they are working for CNN. I'm just telling you that, that so many guys, and, and they don't go up to a woman or a girl on the street and say, excuse me, uh, what's your age? I just want to make sure that you're 18. They, they don't go up and say, hey, have you been trafficked? I mean, are you, is there any force or fraud you know, behind what you're, they are just buying. Can I, can I express, I just want to shine a light on Carla for a second because she was one of the first survivors I ever met and I met her through a UNODC Blue Heart campaign visit to Mexico City. And at the time, I think Mexico City was a little bit more like the Wild West and I, I want to hear how so much progress has been achieved in, in, in uh, it was 2004 or 2005 that I was there. No, no, it was later, it was 2009. Um, but this girl, I interviewed her for the UN and she was as tough as nails and would not betray any emotion. She had a little cap on, she was angry as hell, and she had this little child near her, and I thought that must be her sister. And then she started telling me a story about how her pimp trafficker had punished her for an infraction by taking a hot iron to her and then to the baby's face. The baby was less than two years old, scarring the baby's face. And when she said that, she started to shake and like one tear came down, and I was, so intensely moved by it, and I didn't know how this person would come out of this. Cut to last year, Vatican, I see Rossi, and I'm like, Rossi, what are you doing here? And Carla was there to read in Spanish the interfaith declaration on against modern day slavery that the Pope had initiated with all these religious leaders. Carla is an example of the way it's done right, of the way that every survivor can become completely a, a fully functioning, happy human being. And that's why I want none of you to take away from this like, oh, it's so hopeless, there's nothing can be done. Carla is an incredible shining example of the triumph of the human spirit over that incredible volume of rape that you were talking about. But I do want to hear from you, Rossi, because when we were there, there weren't very many prosecutions and it seemed like there was so much corruption in right. Mexico City that you'd never make any headway. How have you made headway? Well, now we have more than 550 convictions in Mexico. Not that but there were almost none when we were there. Yeah. There was like one or two. Yeah, I know. But it's still a drop in the uh, ocean, isn't it? You, you, we had an incredible ambassador, Anthony Wayne. He was very aware of what right. we were doing in the law. And now the, our law is very strong, as it is you, many of your laws in the States. Our law is general. Our law rules over all Mexico now. And that's what worries me, that the money goes to the NGOs who are lobbying against the law, but against the punishment of all the traffickers. You can have all the laws in the world mm -hmm. if they're not enforced under the rule of law. Yeah, and that's our problem. Only half of the country is really applying that law. And that's, that's our problem now in Mexico. Only half, but we have a lot of, of girls like Carla that are really doing well as activists. And I think that's the key. I will say that at the end, but that's the key. The victims are the most important part of this fight against human trafficking. The human beings, they are the treasure, they are the gems. All right, let's take some questions. Please make, if you have a question, <laughs> make your way to one of the microphones. And at this part, we would wish to talk about trafficking within the United States. I'm told that in this particular institution, there is never any shortage of questions. Please. Good evening. Um, I'm Sandra Cano, and I'm a city council in the city of Pataque, Rhode Island. And a um, couple of months ago, we passed an ordinance in the city of Pataque 
which is called Body Works. And this ordinance is to enforce um, commercial establishments such as spots that are actually dealing with human trafficking in our city. This is a growing issue for the state. Uh, other cities have passed this law. The problem here is that we don't have enabling legislation to regulate these businesses. So the state has the enabling legislation. Right. So even though we have the law, we can enforce it. Which comes back to this entire point, thank you. Which comes back to this point, uh, Swanee Hunt, that it really does come down to the enforcement side in many ways, doesn't it? The, uh, go all over the world, like rule of law, rule of law, rule of law. And you know what? In our country, we don't have rule of law. It is against the law to sell. It is against the law to buy. Cops go out, God bless them, and in the past have picked up about, about nine or ten women and girls for every one man, even though she was being purchased by ten men herself. Okay. Can I just be clear on this, though? Excuse me? Can I be clear on this? Just, and then we'll Your take accent a question from here. is difficult Sorry? for me. Your accent is difficult for me. Well, since you come from Dallas, Texas, I find that an accusation hard to take. <laughs> I, I could talk like this if I need to. <laughs> um, the, this this uh, part that you, going after the men, going after the demand, I'm a business journalist, I'll put it in terms I understand, yeah. going after the demand side of the equation. Right. Are you saying this is against all prostitution? Is this your view against prostitution in its entirety? Uh-huh. So you're probably thinking, is this about children or minors or is it about all, right? And so let me address that because when, by the time you reach the age of 18, when you're a, quote, consenting adult, if you've been purchased for four years, and that's statutory rape for thousands of mm -hmm. times, how is it that you suddenly blow out the candles on your cake, by the way, you don't have a cake, and become this consenting person? When, I mean, you, at that point, are so vulnerable. We'll take a question. Hi, um, my name is Leia Singer, and I'm a senior here at the college and a member of the JFK Junior Farm Committee. Um, so first, thank you for being here. This is an, an amazing panel and a very worthy cause for attention. Um, my question revolves around education. Um, and I'm not sure in the United States if these girls are going to school and then they stop going to school, if they never go to school at all. Um, how, can, how can this be stopped at the level of schools, teachers noticing that kids stop going or whatever it might be? That, that's a great question. I mean, I think we need to be talking a lot more about prevention and addressing this issue much, much earlier. Again, we know that young people who are at super high risk for sexual exploitation and trafficking have already often been sexually abused, have been in the child welfare system, have experienced domestic violence. So at least, right, recognizing those risk factors. But, I mean, there are young people who are going to school at one point and then are not going to school anymore, so making sure that guidance counselors, nurse, school nurses, that folks, teachers, are trained and ready to kind of identify and then know what to do. So, I mean, our program and some other programs around the country go out into schools and different kind of right at-risk youth programs to make sure that professionals are trained right. to be able to identify those signs and to be able to, to intervene much earlier. 
Training is one of the things that I advocate the most heartily for everywhere around the world and in the U.S. because every aspect of society needs to be trained to recognize the signs of human trafficking victims. So first responders, people in hospitals, sometimes the only time a victim will be alone for two minutes without their controller, whether they're a labor or a sex trafficking victim, is in the emergency room when they're hurt. Schools, uh, trains, planes, any place where you have transit, Everyone working in the government and in civil society should receive training courses on human trafficking. It's absolutely essential. It raises the rate of discovery so much. It is absolutely essential. But the other thing is high schools right now in their curriculum don't have curriculum about human trafficking. So at-risk kids who might be experiencing but staying in school or are at risk for it happening to them ha are not being given that education as a part of their curriculum. You should have sex ed and you should have right. anti-trafficking classes. So you say, when somebody comes up to you in a mall and says, you know, I know nobody cares about you at home, I think you're hot, I love you, not to listen. All right, but on the, I'm, I'm coming, don't worry, I'm coming to you. But you were, you were talking a minute ago, and, and the ambassador was saying a minute ago about these large numbers of girls being promised a better life in Mexico. The Prince Charming arrives, going to take them up to a better life, which of course we know goes badly wrong. But is it sufficient to say We'll ask you first, and then we'll come to you, um, Rachel. Is it sufficient to say that an education campaign, an advertising campaign, a campaign of awareness would do any good in that situation? Well, I think when we involve the victims, the survivors, to be part of that training, it's the most powerful way. But also, we have to think how many families in Mexico are now without life because the girl has disappeared. All those uh, 16,000 girls, most of them are girls, are coming to the United States and the families in Mexico are really having the worst nightmare that you can ever imagine. They go to eat with an empty dish in front of them. They eat without uh, hunger. They sleep without sleeping. And they really live without life. And those people are suffering the most. We have to do... Ha to give us our hands and do really cooperate because these, these families are suffering too much. Rachel, and then I, I think your point is really important that like the awareness campaign, the education piece, you can give somebody a list of like 10 ways to spot a trafficking victim, but you've got, you've got to go deeper than that. You've got to have schools and educations and places of worship talking about healthy relationships with young people, about valuing our children, even children who don't look like us. Right, I mean, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. human trafficking right. exists because we don't see certain people as human as other mm -hmm. people. A question. Hi, uh, just from the financial aspect, getting a little bit away from sexual slavery and more into other types of slavery, how can the average consumer try and do their part by not purchasing? I mean, how can you know <laughs> when you purchase, for example, clothing or meat or farm produce that you're not purchasing something that was created with slave labor? I'm going to do something highly unusual here. I'm going to ask you to ask that question again later. <laughs> if you'd be as... Beauty of not being live. Well, live as such, streamed maybe, but for television. But that question is crucially important. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get to that point. So don't go too far away. Don't go too... On one other note on this question about awareness, because it is absolutely crucial, and it will affect and deter and prevent a percentage of cases that happen every year. But here in the US and around the world, I have met enough women, men, and boys 
who knew all the risks, who were fully aware that they might be entering into a risky scenario, but their alternative, their alternative was so much more bleak and unimaginably horrific that they had no choice. Think of the flow of migrants coming out of Northern Africa and the Middle East now. They know they're swimming in piranha-infested waters trying to get to Germany and Sweden. But what is their alternative to just be bombed to death, to starve to death? So but in if you're many right, cases- if you're right in that sense, that even knowing the risks, and they're still prepared to do it, then you're facing a much more serious and difficult problem in prevention. You're, you're absolutely right. Human trafficking and slavery today, it's not a simple scenario. We have to think about how bleak the world is for a huge percentage of the world's people and understand that the solution to this problem is both supply and demand side. And particularly when we're talking right. about the flow of migrants, we have to address the underlying instability, poverty, injustice that they face each and every day to ultimately eradicate this problem. We are going to move on, but I want on the question of the United States. I'm going to leave it the last word to you, Ambassador, because you're the one who has now been handed the kettle. You're the one, along with your colleagues, who has to do something about it. So what are you going to do? We're going to continue down the path of protection, prevention, partnership with NGOs, and we're going to keep fighting. Prosecution? Prosecution. That's where I came from. Of course, that's going to continue. Thank you. Let us now look at the global situation. So I've talked about migrants. Well, the current crisis in Europe has thrown up an entire bevy of problems, the like of which we won't know the results of for years, if not decades. But Southeast Asia and large parts of the Asian continent are already suffering from many of these problems, as you can see from this report. Toa is an amazing young woman. She has a bravery that really the, I don't think the outside world understands. When Toha heard there was a client for virgins, she didn't know what that meant. How old were you when your mother wanted to sell your virginity? Yeah, you wanted to be a good daughter. Like the others, Toha says she was checked at a hospital, issued a certificate of virginity, and delivered to a man at a hotel. I can't imagine what it feels like to have your mother sell you, to have your mother waiting in the car while she gets money for you to be raped. How can that feel to a kid? It's not she was stolen from her mother. Her mother gave the keys to the people to rape her. I mean, it's, yeah. I want to fight as hard as I can to help you and other people like you. Thank you so much. You're very brave and very, very brave. Mira, um, 
very difficult to ask any question following on from something as disturbing and distressing as that. But the real point there is when you have the mother complicit, you're in a different league. You're in an absolutely different set of problems for prevention in the future, aren't you? Well, you'd be surprised that even in the US, people are trafficked by their own families. It happens much more than you would think. Um, in this case, this is an extension of the difficulties of migration because all the three young ladies that we spoke to in this, in this particular doc were all Vietnamese uh, paperless immigrants and they lived in floating villages and they survived uh, just barely off of farming fish and when they had uh, a storm come, they, they lost their fish and they had to borrow from loan sharks. And those same people took a $200 loan and it escalated to $10,000 within a year's time. And then those same people came back around and said, we know you've got a 12-year-old daughter. We've got a Chinese client who'd like to pay $10,000 for her virginity. We can get rid of your, your, your debt. And so it's this cycle. So, but yes, it is becoming a cultural issue within these communities that more and more families are selling their kids into sex slavery to pay, sell one child to pay for the rest to eat. And the more it's culturally okay, the more other families are inspired to do it. But it's also obviously a cycle of there's no education. Cambodia does not have an enforced universal education. So these kids are generally not going to school at all. So they have no other way out economically to develop skill sets, to develop confidence and awareness that would take them out of this level of poverty and they're ripe for vulnerable exploitation. And we're gonna wide it out to look at non-sex exploitation in a moment, but I just want to say for you, uh, Swanihan, this really does, this story from Cambodia makes your point very strongly, doesn't it? About the demand side of the equation. It does, and a, a huge number of the people who are going to Cambodia are men who are wanting more and more exotic uh, experiences. And there are whole you know, sex tours. And the United States is supplying a large number of those men because it's an appetite that is acquired, that is developed. But, but if it is, uh, it is just foreign men, though, 8% local men. I'm that, not that, disagreeing. Yeah, I know. Right. I, but I, I am know. saying, I'm critical. Right. Yes, but just, just to dispel the myth Let's that it's only it out. foreign Let's pedophiles. It out. Let's widen it We've talked, I mean, and I'm not denying or minimizing, um, but I, I do want to discuss some of the other areas of enforced labor, whether it be agricultural labor, uh, indentured service, even I dare say areas like the Gulf, where people are brought across the subcontinent, where people, um, so that's- Moving off of this right now though, because if we are, I just wanted to say that this, the solutions that have been come up with by this by the specific NGO that we were working with, Agape International Missions, Thank you. are extraordinary. Because uh, this one man and his wife have moved there, they have devoted their entire lives to working hand in hand with the government. They have raised money to create a SWAT team which has replaced formerly ineffectual and corrupt police investigations to an impenetrable group of highly paid and highly skilled police that actually have now made successful raids and have led to prosecutions and, and jailings. Uh, they have saved thousands of victims, and now they are building a giant school in Swipok. And this school just got second place in the entire nation, just in the above many of the top independent schools there, you know, like our Andovers or you know, in a STEM contest. And it's the poorest kids of the country, the kids that everyone forgets and thinks that are just going to stay sex trafficking victims forever. So. I just want to say that this is not just highlighting a problem, it's highlighting a solution. I encourage everybody to watch this on CNN and Freedom Project. 
Um, it's every day in Cambodia, and you should support the work of Agape International Missions, AIM, and Three Strands, which funds them. This is an incredible NGO that has done more, in my opinion, than most of the NGOs that I've worked with around the world. I am incredibly impressed with their work. I would, I would encourage people to watch CNN full stop. <laughs> and, and Richard, yes, please. No, no, Thank you. Uh, oh, yeah. I accept, I accept. But I just want to point out that what you're saying right. about the school led is exactly what Rachel was right. saying, that these are not women and girls that we simply right. give up on. Yeah. I want to move on. Richard, I'm sorry. Two very, very crucial points that come out of this that are fundamental to this entire discussion tonight. Number one, it is primarily the stateless, the people who don't exist, the migrants who aren't on the paper rolls of any other country, the disenfranchised, the subclass of humanity who are trafficked and exploited. And number two, it is debt bondage. That first loan, people who lack access to formal credit markets, and as a business guy, you'll appreciate this, lack access to formal credit markets, that is the first perilous step down the abyss of modern day slavery. And you see it throughout South Asia, throughout East Asia, but here in this country as well. People who borrow that loan to cross the border or borrow a little bit of money to get that job opportunity, whether it's construction in Dubai or agricultural farms in California. Debt bondage worldwide is probably the fundamental first step of people ending up in a, in a situation of slavery. So what is the solution? Part of it comes from microcredit. Microcredit does give some access to people who don't get access to formal credit markets, but it doesn't help everyone, the poorest of the poor, as they're called. We have to find a way through do donor aid and more investment. Mira cited how much money we spend on defense versus foreign aid. So we spend more in a day on defense as a country, and this country does a very good job on human trafficking. We spend more on defense in one day than we've spent in 15 years to fight slavery. Do you think this So we have to redirect resources to those people who are most vulnerable, and I'm, in all of my research across 15 years, this issue of the loan that spirals out of control is fundamental to modern day slavery. So you either, I mean, I think you can, we can agree here that, the, that merely warning those who are about to engage in the loan is not going to work. Because it's your point, isn't it, about, you know, people have been told that it's going to happen, but it's... So you really are looking at... You've got... Change the situation so that there, there are ways that people can make money in other ways. I mean, you can't, you can't allow the world to wallow in its poverty. I mean, I think we can look at what this Pope, whatever you agree or disagree with his overall philosophies, there are certain things that we can agree on about him that he is basically calling us as he sees it is that the world has come to tolerate an underclass of staggering proportions and say, well, that's okay. You know, there's all gonna right. be people living under the poverty line all across the world and that we're not particularly worried about changing that. That as long as we're okay, do, we can sleep at night. Do you fear when we look at the pictures coming from Europe at the moment, Sidra, that we are looking at the making of not just a migrant refugee crisis, but as relations to the modern day slavery, we are talking about that happening as a re with many more people as a result of what's happening. From your experience and your research. I think without question, any time you have seen, particularly in the past 20, 25 years, an explosion of mass migration trends, traffickers and slave traders swoop into that chaos because they know those people's alternative is so impossibly bleak that they will find people to traffic and recruit. So we may not see it now. We'll do research and in a year or two, we will find out that a certain percent 
of the people who are now migrating from North Africa and from the Middle East into Europe ended up not able to access services or a secure place and were trafficked into forced labor or forced sex. And what is most distressing and disturbing about this is that they are, in many cases, going into countries, Mira, which are supposed to have proper protections against this sort of thing. The Germanys, the Swedens, the, the Austrias, the United Kingdoms. But they don't have the infrastructure for it. I just spoke at the Dagens Theater um, conference this summer at Almadalen, and Sweden really doesn't have the infrastructure to deal with human trafficking victims because largely they thought they didn't have any. And they've only recently begun to admit that actually we do have, because our socialized system, Swedish people feel very, uh, they're, they're kind of spoiled about how much work they actually want to do. So there's a subculture of dirty jobs that they don't want right. to take, that the migrant labor it fills in. And all of a sudden, all those labor protections and all those, those, those uh, benefits that they enjoy don't apply to these people, and they are subject to terrible abuses. So these countries are living with blinders on. They don't actually see it. But you know, back to you know, labor in the US, because we, we kind of gave it no, no attention at all. I've interviewed two people that worked at an elder care facility that I think might have been the same elder care facility that my husband's grandmother died in. And these two people were trafficked in from the Philippines and told that they were going to have like a good job in the US and ended up being 24-7 elder care workers with no training, working for six months straight with no day off, made to eat garbage, not allowed to shower, uh, threatened with, with threats to their life and their family should they ever try and run away. And people came in and vetted the place. Agencies, two state agencies came in and saw nothing wrong. All they were concerned about was the ratio of workers to patients. Two of them came in and didn't see the trafficking right. under their eyes. So this is everywhere. Because there aren't enough resources put into it. Let's face it, those two people who came in to vet probably had about 15 other institutions to vet before the end of the month. Mm -hmm. Yes, but they also had no training to understand what human trafficking looks like. Mm -hmm. Rosie, we'll take it. The, the lady who have a question, would you like to make your own question? Thank you. Yes. Your question. <laughs> Gosh. Um, so I was just wondering um, what can the average consumer do to try and protect themselves or to help in, in our own purchases? So how can I know that the clothing I'm buying or the food that I'm buying or the elder care that I'm putting my grandmother into, you know, how can I stop from funding um, slave labor? How can you stop? Well, we just heard about the problem we had in Baja California in San Quintin. And it was Driscoll. The company Driscoll was the one who was having people as slaves working in our country, Baja California. At least we don't buy Driscoll. I mean, if we already hear those news, and maybe in my country there is impunity because nobody did enough even though we have a law. It happened the same in Coahuila, and the people is in jail, right. because we have a law that punished that in Mexico. It didn't apply in Baja California because impunity, but it applied in Coahuila. But we know that this company was Driscoll, so at least we don't buy Driscoll. Right, I want to, we're going to come to you in a second, because I want to get to the point of public awareness related to that. There, there are organizations oh. such as knowthechain.org which you can, you can investigate, but I think everything is right now in its infancy in terms of vetting corporations, because that's really what she wanted to know about. How can she as a consumer make an informed choice? 
you can start by asking at the point of sale, do you know the slavery footprint of this? Do you know if there's any slavery in the supply chain? Most of the time, people are gonna say, no, I don't know. And that's why the Transparency and Supply Chains Acts are so important, but they're very limitedly applied now. Right. The UK, the UK just, just made a law that any company that made over $36 million has to, has to thoroughly vet to see whether there's any slavery in their supply chain. But right now in the US, we're a little bit in our infancy in that we need an outside right. incorruptible body to go in and be a third party auditor for all corporations to check the chain. We can't just say, yeah, uh, tell us, oh, you have zero slavery in your supply chain? That's okay, that's cool, we trust you. We shouldn't trust anyone. That's a thought. Um, it's, no, hang no, on, hang on. No, no, this no, is a no, big, no, big statement. I want to move on. One, 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 Yes. No. This world currently is built on a I'm slave economy. Here. A slave economy. All right. The goods you buy, everything we do is currently, the prices are lowered because products oh. are made by slaves. Right, but I can answer that. I can answer that back to you by saying, as Laura Tyson once famously said, that the US will have a shoe industry when everybody in this room is prepared to pay more for shoes. When you're not, when you're prepared, well, when you're prepared to pay more yes. for an H&M shirt. Right, I'm, not, I'm saying it's my fault just as much as yours. But we need to come to grips with the fact that our economy globally is based on slave labor right. as I the bottom line for third-party contractors. Whoa. The point is, the point is, is and well taken, and we shouldn't just drift over it uh, too quickly. The fact of the matter is, right now as a consumer, it's exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to know, is my shirt, is my shrimp dinner, is my iPhone not tainted by child labor or slavery? Particularly here in this country, we don't have the laws in place. Now, you said, when everyone's willing to pay more, maybe we won't have slave-made shoes and jackets and iPhones. Well, the fact of the matter is, and I shouldn't call out iPhones, any cell phone and laptop and electronic device. It's just, we all have them and it comes, okay. So, yeah. You've just no. saved my job, thank you. But the point is, I think if people right. knew that their consumer products are tainted and they know reliably that they're tainted, they would be willing to pay more. So what we have to do, as she rightfully said, is create independent third-party regimes of certification and supply chain tracing all the way to the point of retail sale. And this is work that we are doing right now at Harvard University is supply chain research so that we can tell the consumer, this one is not slave tainted, this one is, that one costs a little bit more, now you and your conscience decide, right. and maybe someone will decide not to buy the slave free good, but I think most people are willing to pay more. Let's look at this video, which is where you, sir, yes you, have combined research into a screenplay for a movie that's due to come out. And as we look at this, we will consider our final thoughts about what needs to be done. Practically, we've already discussed policy, we've discussed perseverance, prosecution, now let's hear practical while you watch this video. Inside the secluded California ranch. I'm not, I'm not. And if I just get that, we'll be fine. A film crew is busy shining the bright lights of Hollywood on a crime traditionally hidden in the shadows. Every character in this film, every scenario, everything that's happening is drawn from something real that I documented. Siddharth Kara is a noted Harvard professor and human trafficking expert. He spent the past 15 years documenting trafficking cases around the world. Those cases provide the inspiration for this film. Do you have any idea how many girls I see on the streets? 
Traffic stars Ashley Judd as a social worker who sells children in the system to a pimp. One of the film's most riveting performances belongs to Charlie Cantor. The high schooler plays a young woman, fooled by a fake modeling offer and then made to work in a brothel against her will. Cantor says she learned of the issue and Siddharth Kara long before ever landing the role. I did a research paper about human trafficking my freshman year and I read Siddharth's book and I just learned an abundance of all these things that are going on that nobody, nobody at least in my environment knew about. For Kara, reaching a broader audience while seeing the script come to life still calls up a range of emotions. There's a fair bit of pain as I think back to those true people and I wonder what happened to them. But there's also some hope in that as I see this young girl saying what she said to me, I'm realizing she's got a voice and her story is being told. With hopes that by telling it, the story will prevent others from going through it themselves. So the question first of all, I want to pick up from where you How many people in this auditorium, there must be several hundred people here, even those of you at the back, how many of you have ever made an inquiry about the provenance or origin of, a, of something you've bought? What was it? What were you asking about? What did you ask? And what answer did you get? So did you buy them anyway? Who else put their hand up? Yes. And? Right. So people are asking, but not asking enough. Yeah, and there is a lot of people in my country being in those cocoa camps that are slaves. And really, it's like concentration camps. I think we're starting to scratch the surface of realizing just how tainted the global economy is by slavery and child labor. And we need to put child labor in there because it's not always necessarily slavery. Uh, child's, children weaving carpets or being on cocoa plantations for penny wages or in the mines in the DRC pulling out the tungsten and, and tantalum that go into our electronic devices. So we're talking about now hundreds of millions of people whose servile labor exploitation is part of the profit maximization and price minimization that is fundamental to the market economy. And we have to be willing to forego a little bit of profit and pay a little bit more for things so that we can rebalance People the People always economy. say they are until they're asked. You know, you might be right. I mean, I try not to be cynical. And we certainly all have limits in our disposable income. And we do make choices as consumers uh, about, right. well, I, I have no choice but to buy these shoes. But I think if the regime is fundamentally made more balanced and equitable, we'll have the opportunity to make choices and to not have slave-made goods at every corner of the shelf. I want to... You have to, you, but you have to build in structures that make right. it impossible for people just to choose what's easier for them. If you do have these vetting mechanisms and real consequences for companies that do use third-party contractors that use a slave factory, then 
you, you curtail it whether or not the consumer says, yeah, I want to get the cheaper or the more expensive. If you make it illegal and enforce it, not have paper tiger laws, but real teeth, then you start to change things. Just like with the Johns. I want to go back to you, Swanee, because I've quoted you before in terms of deterring Johns. And there's so little to deter Johns right yes. now. Like uh, if you impound their car, most Johns won't do it 71%, again. 71% say they won't buy if their car is impounded. 88% say that if someone in their family was going to find out, if there was a letter to go back to their family, 88% say right. they would stop. As we so come you have to the to end. plan for human nature. You can't just leave it up in the right. air. Ambassadors, you get, you get the first of the last words as we come to the end. Um, and this is for you all to think about as your final contribution this evening. What is the one change that if you had, that you hope to, to, to achieve, the one change, and I'm not talking about some grandiose policy highfalutin phrase, the one thing that at the end of your tenure as ambassador, you will have succeeded in doing. I wanna be a voice and everyone in this room can be a voice for the voiceless. What policy will you implement? You just told me not to talk about a policy. I, I don't know what the exact policy is, but something that amplifies what we are seeing and experiencing, that amplifies it so that people hear it. They hear it on CNN, they hear it at their dinner parties, they hear what's happening and they're compelled to do something about it. I'm going to give you a magic wand. You can make one change, one law. You can have one thing that will change things. What would it be? everywhere and and vacating convictions bills that for both children and adults wipe um, their records totally clean if they've been exploited in traffic so this is the idea of decriminalize <laughs> decriminalizing from or more than decriminalizing protecting at the other side of the equation Yes, it's a realistic magic yes. wand, right? Okay. Yes, yeah. yes, no, no, I, 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 Well, it's decriminalizing the women and girls. Yes. Right? Yes. 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 I mean, <laughs> the magic wand, you can have one change. I call it the circle, the, uh, the virtuous circle. And I always think that he who saves the life saves the world, it says the Talmud. And when we save a woman, a girl, a victim of human trafficking, and we really take that person that is a valuable person to be successful, to be an activist, to be an actress, to be like you, Rachel, then we can see somebody that it's a gem that is the example of what we admire. She was a victim, now she is an example to the world. So I think that's the virtual circle. To not to only rescue them, that we just rescue one percentage, and right. the rest of them, they will become criminals because they are full of hatred to all of us. So we have to rescue the 100% and then empower them to be successful. One change. One change. Well, first of all, I have to pick a minor bone with you guys because you showed the clip from my movie, which is fantastic, but you gave away a major plot point vis-a-vis -vis Ashley Judd. So everyone just forget what you saw. She's a wonderful person. Okay. Now. One change. One change. I worked with her. I could have that. Absolutely. One change. One change. 
on the demand side of modern day slavery, whether it is for commercial sex or companies demanding profit through exploitation of slave labor, the enactment of sufficiently punitive, costly, toxic, painful laws that make it very, very distasteful to be involved in demanding slave labor of any kind. Mara, one change. Okay, I, you guys had both said <laughs> the two first ones that I would have said, so I, I side with them on both of those, but, um, and the safe harbor and the, the punitive teeth. Um, I would say then enactment of universal across the board in every country training for everyone because that will make a difference in discovery and creating, uh, 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 removing the atmosphere of impunity for the traffickers and saving many more victims and preventing. So that, that would be something, universal training for every sector. Sonia Hunt, you get one change. We build on the conviction that there is redemption, that people can change. We know that's true. And we know that to support your work and Rachel, yours, and that we must hold perpetrators accountable, but we are the perpetrators too, because we can look the other way. I'm so moved by this panel tonight. We are all responsible for the coarsening of our culture. And it is groups like us, like you here today, who cared enough to come, and CNN. I, I'm, it is, I would like the one change to be that we all take responsibility. As we come to a close, piece of paper, piece of paper. Piece of paper. You've all got pieces of paper on your chairs. Piece of paper. Piece of paper. Make a paper aeroplane. And when have you have you got have you got your paper up there or in the cheap seats? We're going to pass paper out at the top. And on the count, I mean, I'll give you time to get yourself ready. I mean, I figured at Harvard you must be able to make a paper aeroplane. How much is tuition here now? This each year? Yeah, how much, is, how much is tuition now? All right. All right, everybody got a paper? I'm not yet. My God, I, oh, we've got Concord over there. That, this is impressive. Ambassador, oh dear, ambassador, <laughs> oh dear. All right, so, what on earth is that? It's an 888, what? It's highly expensive, but won't fly and never, never make any money. All right. Get your paper planes. I'm going to say goodnight. When I say goodnight, on the word goodnight, you all fly your plane. You can aim your plane at me, if such that you wish, or just into it. I'm assuming, Steve, you've got all the cameras in the right position at the right moment. You only get one go at this. 
Don't screw it up. There we go. And that is our discussion tonight here at Harvard University at the Kennedy School of Government. You'll be aware, of course, of our CNN Freedom Project ending modern day slavery. On the screen, you can see the hashtag where you can make your plane, you can make your pledge, you can do your part. I thank our panel. A round of applause to our panel this evening. And as you make your planes, and as you make your pledges, and as you pass it on, I say to you, good night. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.